Hi, my name is Anne McElhaney. And I'm Philip McAleer. Welcome to the Anne and Philip Scoop. It is week 48 of the two-week Flatten the Curve lockdown. Getting dangerously close to week 52, uh, the, the one-year anniversary of the death of death of what? Freedom, death of um, civilization, the death of a lot of people's dreams. An actual just death. Death, yeah. A yeah, bit of that as well. A lot of that. So uh, today's show, we've got two great interviews. We talked to Lila Rose, who's the president of Live Action, the uh, anti-abortion group here on the West Coast, actually. Um, uh, she's, she's a, it's a great interview, and she says a lot about how to change hearts and minds now and how to change hearts and minds in the future. Who else we got, Anne? And we have Robert Bryce, uh, all the way from Austin, Texas, explaining what happened in Austin, Texas. Um, we have a story from Austin, Texas we're going to tell later that's on right, as well. That's right, and I want to tell you about a struggling newspaper. Oh, what struggling newspaper? Yeah, so let's hear how the New York Times struggles uh, trying to prove that freezing weather is actually caused by global warming, which, you know, that's a may, con- that's may, a sound, may sound counterintuitive because mm-hmm. it is, but we'll get on to that. And the most dangerous and offensive show on the television, which most of you probably immediately, the minute I say yes. that, oh. it comes to mind like that. Yeah. It's the Muppets. We'll, we'll be looking at that as well. And we have a story of COVID madness from Ireland Ruff. that we're going to tell complete COVID madness. And we Ruff. have a fabulous recipe. You the little sound effects I did there. Oh, yeah, that's very good, Phil. Woof, woof. For a minute there, I didn't actually know, and then of course I thought I was just barking. Uh, just barking mad. Normally. Not, not no. normally, no. And the so recipe. Yeah, that's a little clue about what the story's going and on. And we have a very fabulous recipe, um, French peasant recipe, that is chicken with 40 cloves of garlic, and it is outrageously did, good. Did you actually use 40 cloves? I probably used 50 cloves. Oh, didn't feel like that, actually. And you know why I was able to use so many cloves of garlic with ease? Because you shop in Costco. Because I shop in Costco, and Costco have a bag of cloves of garlic, do, which yeah. you can keep in your freezer, and you'll never, never not have cloves of garlic. And how many cloves do you them. say? Would you say you've left from that bag? Oh, I would say four hundred. I would. What do you think? I've got four hundred cloves well, left. Just oh, I, it could be a thousand. I mean, it's a huge oh, bag. Really? It's, a, it's a, it's a lot of, it's a lot of cloves of garlic. So there'll be no problem with any kind of vampires here. Anyway, we're going to first of all go over to the interview we did earlier with Lila Rose. Um, let's let's go there right now. So yes, we're. We're joined now by, by Lila Rose, who is one of the most prominent anti-abortion voices in America and in the world. Just to give you some background about Lila, she founded Live Action at the uh, very young age of just 15. I was actually going to make sort of almost a joke. She founded Live Action when she was 12, but actually 15. Yes, 15. basically 12. Yes. And... Uh, she, by, and she started off giving presentations, moved very quickly then when she was at UCLA, when she partnered with our friend and uh, the brilliant journalist James O'Keefe to do <laughs> undercover videos at, at, at abortion providers. Um, and, you know, among one of the videos that I remember was her pretending to be, I think it was a 15-year-old girl uh, who had been made pregnant by a 23-year-old man. And that is statutory rape and you everyone's obliged to report that uh, and none of the abortion providers reported that and in fact one of them i believe told her to say she was 16 uh, because mm-hmm. if they knew she was 15 uh, they would have to report it so and that that, that is our we're relatively new to the abortion world and that has been our experience too that the rules that there are that these regulated industries are completely unregulated mm-hmm. um, and no one follows the rules. And it's all about 
doing more and more abortions and allowing people to do more and more abortions. And we mm -hmm. saw that with, with Kermit Gosnell and the way he was let do whatever he wants. So she's done undercover stings in Indianapolis, Bloomington, Tucson, Phoenix, Memphis. Um, <laughs> you know, All over the place. You know, the, the, the 2006 tour, you know, or whatever. Um, she, so you're now the president of live action, which I think is, is still focused on, on journalism, but also is more, but it's also now you're looking at changing minds and releasing videos uh, on abortion. Hi, welcome to the show, Lila Rose. <laughs> well, welcome to the show, Lila. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. <laughs> How would you say what live action is today? Sure. So we are the uh, leading digital educator for the pro-life movement. So that means we're reaching millions of people weekly with some investigative reporting still, but a lot of it is content, videos, apolog uh, you know, pro-life apologetics, human interest stories, um, live action news to change, designed to impact people who might not already agree with us. So we work to um, make a big tent for the pro-life movement to say, listen, it doesn't matter your political background or really any, your, any of your background, we should all be united in rejecting the human rights abuse of abortion and standing for the beauty and gifts of human life. So that's our that's our, our focus. And we think to end abortion, we have to change hearts and minds. So that's what we focus on. Where are we now? I mean, how would you have described the, first of all, what were you expecting with the Trump presidency in advance of it? Mm -hmm. How did it pan out in reality? So a lot of us were unsure going into the Trump presidency, what would happen. Um, obviously, President Trump had a background of being pro-abortion, and then he said he was pro-life, and he made several huge commitments going into his campaign to win support from the pro-life movement. Um, I think that there was a lot of rhetoric from the Trump administration, which was very pro-life, which is important. You know, we have it's an important thing to have the president of the United States speaking on behalf of life. But when it comes to hard metrics, you know, one of the challenges were, you know, we saw some of the typical things done, like the repeal of the Mexico City policy, uh, the, re the reenactment of the Mexico City policy, which would prevent taxpayer funding overseas for abortion. So that was good. That's something George Bush had done when he was president as a Republican. Um, but unfortunately, you know, not many people know this, Planned Parenthood taxpayer funding went up in the four years of the Trump administration. Um, now, this wasn't because President Trump did it on purpose. It was because they were billing more through Medicaid. But, you know, we were um, it was troubling to see. It was frustrating to see that some of the big things that we know could be done, like Department of Justice actually exposing and investigating and prosecuting Planned Parenthood, that hasn't happened. Um, you know, Planned Parenthood is receiving more taxpayer money today than ever. So these things were, you know, challenging. And, you know, we're, we're looking forward to building up the groundswell at the state level because the federal level, um, you know, continues to be frustrating to see that, that total legal protection enacted. The one bright side, of course, is, you know, the hopes for the, the Supreme Court. You know, I am hopeful that the new justices appointed, you know, that, that is a big deal. And I am hopeful that those justices will uh, do their part in undoing Roe v. Wade, which is a terrible Supreme Court decision, of course, that legalized abortion. Uh, but we'll have to see, you know, that that hasn't happened yet. I'm always, I always get nervous for any side or anybody who says we're, we're, we're really hopeful for the Supreme Court judges. Mm -hmm. Supreme Court judges have shown themselves to be just as vulnerable to uh, pressure and, and fashions and fads. Uh, more so than almost politicians. Uh, it's 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 not a. I don't think it's a great place for anyone to be. Yeah. To be dependent upon the whims of 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 Neil Gorsuch getting up on the wrong right side of the bed uh, this mm -hmm. morning. You know. Well, that and that that was the troubling thing because so many people said 
you know, we need to fight for President Trump because of the Supreme Court. And I agree with you. It's, it's, a, it's sort of like a Russian roulette. You don't know if these justices, even though they seem to be constitutional originalists, you know, we don't know how they're going to rule. And I think you're right. They often do go with the, kind of the whims of what the, the, the culture appears to be at. So that's why it all comes back to, in my opinion, it comes back to two main things. Um, fighting the fight culturally, I think we have to make this culture pro-life. And that is, the law matters tremendously, but sometimes, you know, there's so many powers entrenched to make the law a difficult battle at the federal level. So we should focus on hearts and minds and then focus on the states because state, many states right now, I mean, South Carolina, just uh, the governor just signed the heartbeat bill, banning abortions after the heartbeat can be detected, virtually all abortions in the state. That's progress, even though it's gonna get tangled up in court, it shows that the will of the legislature, the will of the people is pro-life. And that's what we need to work on to build the groundswell necessary to change the federal government. Um, if Roe v. Wade gets overturned, you still have the issue with individual states having the right to enact laws that are very, very pro-abortion. Um, I kind of always feel that actually Roe v. Wade being overturned is, isn't the biggest victory out there. The bigger victory is what you actually mentioned earlier was winning hearts and minds because people will end up getting to vote on this at the state level. And I worry about what they might decide to do because we are from Ireland, as you know, Lila, mm -hmm. and the people in Ireland got to vote on yeah. this, the only country on the planet Earth and you know how they voted. Mm -hmm. Overwhelmingly, they voted for abortion. Um, what, is, what, are, what are you guys doing to try and change hearts and minds? Um, and a quick note on the Supreme Court before talking about hearts and minds. You know, I, I agree with you that if it's just a straight up um, reversal of Roe or an undoing of Roe, then yes, it goes down to the states. The, the states become the, you know, the arbiters of whether or not preborn children have legal protection or not. That being said, it is possible for the Supreme Court to actually um, do a new ruling that does undo Roe, but also reasserts that federal protection for the preborn is a right, that they have a human right just like us and that they are persons under the law. So if the Supreme Court were to do a ruling that um, indicates that the preborn are persons, just like you and I are persons, then all of a sudden, um, and they're human beings, so of course all humans are persons, then all of a sudden any state law that talks about protecting persons has to apply to the preborn. So that's one of the, I think the ultimate end game if possible. But of course, as you, as you both have said, it's out of our hands. You know, we don't know how the, the justices will rule. But that being said, I agree with you. I think hearts and minds is the real battle. And I think we look at what's happened in other countries and we see this uh, huge movement by the pro-abortion lobby to persuade people to say, if you don't vote pro-abortion, then you're somehow hurting women, right? That's how it's been set up that pro the the right to the right to an abortion so-called right to an abortion is somehow the protection of women and the advancement of women and that's exactly what we need to fight head on and that's what live action is doing and, and, and other groups what we focus on is to say listen women are not empowered by abortion what is an abortion it's the direct and intentional killing of an innocent human life you are not advanced as a species um, as a people group as women by stepping crushing the rights and the human lives of your children. And there's a lot of um, data to explain that. I mean, post-abortion grief and trauma is real, but you know, the biggest issue is this is, a, this is a human rights issue. It's a moral issue. And even if I could somehow be advanced by having a slave or I could somehow be advanced by murdering someone, I could be somehow advanced by stealing from someone, you know, doing these abuses, 
that doesn't mean it's right. And that doesn't mean that's actually authentic advancement. And so a lot of our education at Live Action is exposing what abortion is. You know, many people, and I would argue many people in Ireland, you know, they never really seen head on, this is what an abortion does to a baby. It dismembers that child, decapitates that child, suctions that baby into pieces. I mean, really horrific um, uh, reality of what abortion does, but most people haven't looked at it head on. So that's part of the debate, showing that fact. Um, also talking about how the human rights of women are not um, advanced by abolishing the human rights of children. You know, you can't achieve human rights by hurting someone else's. And then continuing to just tell those stories of what uh, the beauty of human life is and, and, and that human life is worth fighting for. So it's just daily work. You know, it's not um, flashy. It's not uh, something that'll maybe make headline news, but it's the daily work of educating yeah. in communities that will change this. Yeah, no, you've you said a lot there. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, yeah. at the beginning, you talked about post-abortion grief. You know, this is the biggest lie, the biggest myth that there's no mm -hmm. there's no post-abortion grief. I mean, we uh, and more so Anne goes across the country showing Gosnell and talking about Gosnell. And at the end of every speech, there are two or three women, very often waitresses in the venue or people walking past accidentally who will come up to her at the end to talk about how they feel about having had their abortion. I mean, even I remember when the Irish referendum was, was coming along, one of the top feminist journalists in Ireland, Kitty Holland, did an opinion piece and you know about her two abortions and she had one, I remember it was in Holland, the second one was in Holland. And, you know, she's had a line, like, it took me a year to get over it. Mm. Uh, and this is someone who says there's no such thing as post-abortion grief. And it's like, I don't know many things that take you a year to get over, yeah. you know? Um, An appendicitis doesn't take you a year to get over. But, yeah. you know, losing a parent takes a year to get over, you know, uh, losing, you know, but there's, you know, there's very few things in, uh, you know, that's serious damage. That's, that, that means when you take a, a year to get over something, that means you never get over it because it changes you. Uh, so this and, and this and she so but they're able to, you know, this, this world of all, uh, weird facts, you know, you can have a fact there that that you can then deny in the next line and no one calls you out on it. I have the same experience. I mean, these are the hidden stories. Um, not just in Ireland, everywhere where there's women who've had abortions and they're told by the media or that the indication is from abortion groups that they have nothing to grieve, That's that right. there was no loss, you know, yeah. that there's That's not right. a human life. And um, I think it's a terrible um, shame and, it, and it's, it's a, it's a, uh, it's deeply wounding to mm -hmm. these women. So that's the, that's the beauty of the pro-life movement is it gives a, a voice to those quiet, to that quiet grief. And mm -hmm. we see a lot of people who are leading in the pro-life movement and people we feature at Live Action. And I know that people you meet and you, you've talked to, they share their stories and those are very powerful in um, helping people see a different perspective to see, wow, this is not empowerment after all. This is um, the killing of a family member. Yeah. And there's there's deep wounds from that. I remember talking to somebody in Ireland and they had had a child who had a lot of they were pregnant with a baby that had all kinds of awful health difficulties. But they went through, obviously, with the pregnancy and the baby was born and only lived for a little short time. But they named the baby and mm -hmm. all their other children came and met the baby. And they said, you know, and they were a very lovely family and they say their prayers at night. And they said the name of the baby is always mentioned and they always mention how many children they've they you know, how many children they have. One of them that has died mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and they made the point which I thought was great, was that people in abortion, they've never, they don't get to have that 
that naming and that remembering and birthdays and all of that that people have if they've gone through with the pregnancy and the baby even if the baby has died the baby gets to be a really significant part of family but, life but you never told that no that option is never given to people and they never it's never explained to them because uh, to do that then would, opens the wider uh, abortion issue and you of, have to acknowledge the humanity of the yeah. baby then which so, of course is the last thing you want to do yeah people are lying to, to women about whether they will feel grief or not maybe some women don't maybe some women believe that but an awful lot of women do and you have to acknowledge that uh if you're a medical provider if you're a genuine medical provider you have to acknowledge that but but doctors are probably not allowed to acknowledge that they're not allowed especially in a state-run health system like ireland you're not allowed to tell a patient the actual real effects of a treatment that, that that they're going to go for it makes for a very very messed up health system but also messes up a lot of people who then find themselves feeling in a way that they're told they won't feel mm-hmm. and they're wondering well, is there something wrong i think when you when you base a supposed medical decision or you know the whole way that society deals with something on a lie when you base it on a lie and the lie with abortion is it's not a human life right? The lie with abortion is it's not a child. He or she is not a person that if they can be disposed of, then you're going to create all these other dysfunctions and traumas and pains because you can't live with a lie and be healthy. And that's what the medical profession has done is they've accepted the lie that somehow to kill is medicine. Uh, When we know, you know, the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. You know, it's even an ancient creed of medical um, professionals of doctors to say, we do not kill the patient. We we work to heal the patient, but abortion does the opposite. So it's not a surprise that doctors will ignore the, all of the psychological traumas that can come with abortion because they've already bought that first lie that to kill is somehow to heal. So we, at the, at the core of it, undoing the lie, telling the truth instead of the lie, I think is the solution. And, you know, back to what we were talking about hearts and minds, that's what we have to stick to, <laughs> you know, creatively. And that's what you've done with God's now creatively continuing to do that, because here's the good news. Truth is powerful. You know this. I, mm. uh, you, you deal with this and it does resonate. It, it, it's controversial. It can take time. It's hard work, but ultimately it does win. And that's why I have so much hope for our movement. How's the Joe Biden uh, presidency uh, for abortion? <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't mean to laugh. It's not a, not a laughing matter. But it, yeah, the, the truth is non-existent when it comes to this with our current president, which um, has so much does so much damage. First off, the president, our current president has campaigned on his faith. Uh, this is a, a tremendous, I think, um, deception. He uses his Catholic faith as some sort of a yeah. shield for his pro-abortion policies, which is um, antithetical to who Jesus Christ is says he is. He is the one who brings life, who lays down his life for others. Abortion takes life um, on behalf of one's own interests. So it's a great shame that this is our current president and he lies. I mean, he when the Roe v. Wade day was celebrate, celebrated by some and warned by others, you know, January 22nd, uh, just last month, the president of the United States released a statement um, talking about the celebration of women's rights. Never once does he even mention the word abortion. But that's what Roe v. Wade is all about. It's about the 60 million children that have been legalized, their deaths have been legalized and they've been killed in the last 45, 40 to 50 years. He doesn't even say the word because he's relying on deception in order to advance his agenda. And that's the worst kind of lie, using um, Christianity as a, as, a, as a cover for it. 
So it's, it's something that needs to be exposed. I know you speak out against it. Um, we'll continue to speak out against it. And here's the truth. When people find out about the extremism of the Biden um, Harris administration about how they're pro-abortion through all nine months, they want taxpayer funding for abortion. They would prosecute pro-life journalists. That's what Kamala Harris did as attorney general when she was in California. When people discover these things, they are very uh, concerned and they are opposed to these actions by the administration. So that's our job is to educate because the media is not doing this reporting for us. You know, can, I ask, can I ask a question about um, the Catholic Church? Because I know that you're, <clears throat> that you're a convert yourself to Catholicism. And I have to say on this issue, the Catholic Church to me seems very disappointing. We had Tom Ridge, who was the governor, Catholic governor of Pennsylvania, who is, you know, had single-handedly, you know, really um, allowed, allowed Gosnell to thrive um, and, and, and his bloodbath to continue for decades because of, of Tom Ridge's actions. You have Nancy Pelosi, you now have Joe Biden. And, and uh, uh, what is going on with the Catholic Church? I mean, I think it's very disappointing that they are like, so for example, in Ireland, by the way, when the referendum was happening in Ireland, the Catholic Church was more or less silent on this issue. Um, as well, a convert to Catholicism, I mean, what, what, what's, your, what's your understanding of what's going on with the Catholics? Practice um, should flow from belief, but if the belief is corrupted, the practice will be corrupted. And the church's teaching is very clear. Abortion is against the gospel. It's immoral. The church's teaching has never changed on that. But what, has what is changing or what has never been formed is the belief of many Catholics. And then because their, their practice is tied to their belief, or maybe they just have a bad will, meaning, you know, Nancy Pelosi, I think she knows better. I think Joe Biden, I think he knows better, but they're not willing to be honest. And that, you know, is that a poor reflection on their faith? Um, was Judas a poor reflection on, on Jesus Christ? There will always be Judases. And my Catholic faith is not dependent on, you know, the fidelity of people who have betrayed Christ because I, my, my faith is in Christ and my faith is in the teachings and the sacraments of the church, not in the flawed, some of the flawed leadership. So, you know, and there are good leaders, you know, there's absolutely good leaders. Some of the greatest champions of life in the last century have been Catholic saints, you know, St. John Paul II, St. Mother Teresa of Calcutta. So I, I, I do draw inspiration from them, but yeah, it's a tremendous disappointment. I mean, I just want to say like, I mean, you, you know, you, you are allowed to be pro-abortion in this country uh, you know uh, you are you know you are allowed to have pro-abortion views and you know but you cannot I mean it, or I certainly it, do, it doesn't seem logical or factual or sensible to this to how to say that you are pro-abortion and a Catholic those are two fundamentally yeah. opposite um, worldviews actually not even points of view there are you know it's it, and and you know I'm, I'm you have to choose one or the other, mm -hmm. right? You have mm -hmm. to. You can't. You can't um, get away. You know. You cannot be both. And uh, for Joe Biden to say he's a devout Catholic, by the way, it's no. You know, you're not supposed to say I'm a devout Catholic. Everyone else is supposed to say you're a devout Catholic. That's yeah. the thing. But Joe Biden says I'm a devout Catholic. I'm going. I think that's for other people to yes, judge, Joe. Yes. Yes. Uh, and but, at the end of time. At the end of time, you know. In fact, maybe not even for other people to judge, but. Uh, so, I mean, just to explain to people who may not be Catholic, you know, it's a, it's a, the anti-abortion uh, part of Catholicism is, is one of the, you know, one, as you say, a very co a constant, now the, certain parts of the hierarchy may not be happy with it, but it's there and, it, and it's immutable. And, you know, if, if you want to be pro-abortion, I think you have to say, I'm departing from the Catholic church. Yeah, I want to be something else. I want to be something but, else. Yeah. So but, go off. 
But we don't expect them to be honest, do we? I mean, I see the administration lying. I see Joe Biden lying. So I don't know that we should be surprised that some people use Catholic faith as a cover for their abortion agenda. I mean, the, the Christian faith was used as a cover for slavery in the 19th century. I mean, the Christian faith, any faith can be used by a bad person or someone doing bad things to try to hide what their bad, what their you know evil deeds are. So I don't yeah. think it should surprise or scandalize us, even though I, I understand why it's scandalous. I do, because again, this is, this is the, the, the oldest uh, Christian faith that's standing up for life, that should stand up for life. But I would just encourage anyone to go to what the teaching actually is and then be the person you want to see in the world, you know, so, <laughs> um, stand for the yeah. truth. Is it, my understanding, you might know more of this than I do, you know, the early, the anti-abortion movement after Roe v. Wade, was that Catholic-led and then the evangelicals came along in the 80s? Or or, or is that me misreading it? No, you're, it? you're absolutely right. It was the Catholic Church that was the greatest, um, and I think still is the greatest opposition to abortion on demand. I mean, that's what the mayoral groups and the your early pro-abortion activists, you know, they said the bishops are the ones against us. And, and in many ways, Roe v. Wade and the early abortion movement in the United States or that abortion movement was kind of a, you know, a, a, a rebellion against Catholicism. You know, it was a rebellion against the Catholicism of their parents and um, much of the strong faith of, of, you know, the culture at the time. Um, you know, unfortunately that rebellion has corrupted some within the church today. I mean, that is a reality, but it's not a surprise. The movement gained a lot of strength when the evangelicals came in in the late seventies and early eighties, and I mean that I think that alliance has made it very, very powerful. So we're coming to the end of this interview, and actually, I'm not sure if we mentioned this to you, but we always ask our guests two additional questions. Um, and I know you've been spending quite a bit of time at home with because of the pandemic. So we ask people, have they got a recipe that they're famous for? Do you like cooking, Lila? <laughs> I do like cooking. Um, I had a recipe that I'm famous for. I don't know about famous for any recipe, but I am trying to perfect lasagna. And so, how is yeah. that going? Um, the first batch, not so well, but you know, it gets better as I go. So, yeah, I mean, that's I, I like to do simple foods. That's usually easy, simple foods. I'm busy lifestyle and everything, but I think homemade. There's nothing like homemade lasagna. It's really great. And <laughs> the other question we ask people is if there's a piece of art that's inspirational to them, like a painting. Um, piece of music, a movie, um, a poem, any piece of music of, of art that that uh, means a lot to them. First thing that came to mind is George Herbert's Praise, um, Praise Three. So he wrote a series. He's a, a beautiful poet. So you might be familiar with him, but it's basically about how all of our effort in the world um, can't do what God can do in an instant. So it's a it's 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 basically a, thing, a song of praise to God for that, and it's very encouraging to me, especially oh. in our fight that we yeah. ultimately we rely on Him. Oh well, we'll we'll find that and we'll put it up in the show yeah. notes actually because that'll That's be good. great. So Lila, you've um you've you've got a a new a new development uh, that you've just announced. Tell us about that. Sure. So I just finished, and it's now available for pre-order. It comes out in May. My first book. It's called Fighting for Life becoming a force for change in a wounded world. And it's it's basically an inspiration piece for anybody who wants to make a difference. And they look at the world and they say, there's so many problems, especially with the abortion crisis. How can I make a difference? And so it's all the lessons of the last 15 years that I have learned, um, the struggles and the victories for uh, to serve you and anyone who wants to read it for how they can be inspired and encouraged as well. And, and how did you how did you get started in the movement? What what you know, you, you started at a young age. What what inspired mm -hmm. you for, for that? 
Are you going to talk well, about that in the book as well? I, I tell the story. The book is also the story, you know, both my story of public activism and private life, what I've sort of, you know, ups and downs over the years, but it was really learning what abortion was. I mean, simple facts of seeing what it does to a baby at a young age, coming across images in a book that I found in my parents' house and just seeing it as learning the death toll of abortion at the time, 3000 babies a day. And I just thought this is the greatest, the greatest issue. How can I not do something about this? And so one thing led to the never, the next and just taking the next right step and starting live action and beginning investigative work and the, 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 the rest is history, but it was seeing the, seeing the crisis and saying, thinking that I could not um, stay silent. I had to do something about it. Well, we'll put up a link to where people can buy the book. Thank you. Pre-ordering, pre we know from our experience with our book that pre-ordering is very, very helpful, guys, because it'll make Absolutely. a lot of people pre-order your book. It could be the like the number one bestseller in the first week. In the first week, and that's very important. Don't so don't, people, don't order it ten days later. No, order it pre-ordered order or order it the first order week. Order it now because so, all of the ones that are pre-ordered will be counted at the beginning when it comes out first. Do you do you do you go into the book the future of the pro-life movement? What do you see as the future of the pro-life movement, and uh, where is it going to go? Yeah, I think the future of the pro-life movement is a radical. Uh, inner conversion for each of us to stand up for the truth, to love our families and our neighbors passionately, um, to not be afraid to speak what is true to those around us. And I think if we each do that, we transform culture. You know, it is game over um, legally. We, but but it requires individually us to stand, yeah. and that's well, that's yeah, the message that, of the book. That's what I often say: is that abortion uh, will end when it becomes unfashionable, and I don't mean that in a flippant way. When it when it just becomes something. When it becomes unthinkable, when it becomes exactly. unthinkable yes. for people, that's when it'll because the laws are one thing, but how people behave in their hearts is based on what. If they think this is unthinkable, they won't do it. Yeah, and that change begins with us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us yeah. today, Lila. We really, really appreciate your time and your work, and congratulations on your new baby. Who is, Thank what you. age did you say your little boy is now? He's one year old. Wow. Isn't that amazing? God, that's very, just, very fun. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, uh, congratulations and enjoy him. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Yes. We'll Thank talk. you. Thanks, Lila. Thanks so much, Lila. Well, that was great. Yes. That was really great. Yes. And we are going to find that poem and we will print it up and put it on the show notes um, later yes. on. Um, so who are we talking to now, Anna? So we're going to go over right now to Robert Bryce. Um, yeah. To talk really about the electricity about the, the power cuts in texas the deaths in texas uh, the destruction in texas and robert really is the perfect person yes. to just to explain what's gone wrong and how it can be stopped so let's go over to that and give you so we're very very happy to be joined right now by robert bryce who is a texas-based author journalist film producer podcaster um, and it's very spe very specifically the author of power hungry the myths of green energy and the real fuels of the future. His new documentary, Juice, How Electricity Explains the World, is out now. Robert lives in Austin, Texas. So he is the absolute perfect guest that we could have possibly on to explain what happened in Texas and what's going on, Robert. Thank you, Phelan. Thanks, Ann. Thanks for having me back. Um, and by the way, I just got a notice on uh, that uh, the boil water notice has expired. Oh. So we no longer have to boil water in the city, which is just awesome. Well, we had a, a I, five hours, um, very chilled, very chilly 45 hours from uh, right about a week ago. We lost uh, power early Monday morning and it didn't come on back on until just before midnight on Tuesday. 
Um, so I've had a lot of time to think about why this happened and what what were the causes. And if you noticed, it appears the American Wind Energy Association has every journalist in New York and Washington on speed dial because the simple answer is grid mismanagement. I mean, that's the fundamental reason. And on my podcast last Wednesday, I had Meredith Angwin on who has a great new book called uh, Shorting the Grid, which I have a copy of here. And she just said, look, that, that, that the rules that set up the grid don't care about reliability. And why is that? Well, Texas set up an, uh, an, an a, a, a electric delivery system that is called energy only. So you only get paid if you deliver electricity into the market and doesn't reward capacity. Well, that was great. I mean, truly great for the renewable energy producers because they didn't have to provide power when power was dear. So um, you've seen the graphics, I'm sure, when the, the a lot of generation went offline, but at its lowest level, wind energy was only providing about 2% of its total capacity. By contrast, and I'm adamantly pro-nuclear, at its minimum, nuclear was producing 73% of its rated capacity. So we've had a, a, just a long, many years of this ignorance or or acceptance of this idea that we don't have to pay attention to the reliability of the electric grid and it's just dead wrong this is our most important network it's the network it's the mother network it's the network upon which all of these other networks that we depend our water our our, our you know traffic lights everything else depends on the on the electric grid and the the decarbonization effort we've had too much effort uh, too much focus on decarbonization and not enough on resilience and reliability so why is it bad for Texas to have 20, am I correct? 22% of its electricity supplied by wind. You're saying that that's a, there's a problem with reliability there and, 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 and feed. Tell, explain that to me again, why that caused the problem. Well, so let me let me read back to you. There's a good analysis that came out from a couple of analysts on this, and and here's what they wrote. And I'll just, because I think their explanation is probably better than I could say. Texas has stacked the deck to make wind and solar more competitive than they could be in a system that better recognizes the value of dependable resources, which can supply capacity benefits. An energy only market, which I mentioned just a minute ago, helps accomplish the goal of making wind and solar more competitive, except capacity value is a real value. Ignoring that, as Texas did, comes with real perils. So in other words, they, the state accommodated the entrance of all this wind and solar. Okay, fine. You know, I have solar panels on the roof of my house. I'm, you know, solar's fine. Wind is fine. But when you, when you press it too much into the, into the system, and then it doesn't deliver electricity when you absolutely need it, well, then why are you making that investment in those resources? And, and there's this acceptance that, oh, people will just be happy with blackouts. Well, maybe on a spring day when it's 72 degrees, but when the wind is blowing and it was snowing and it was 10 degrees Fahrenheit, that's a bad option. Tell me, but how do you reward capacity value? I mean, how do you pay for something that you're not using? My first book was on Enron. And my latest book, by the way, I'm glad you mentioned Power Hungry. My new book, Question of Power, Electricity and the Wealth of Nations, um, is out at all fine booksellers. My first book was on Enron. And when I was researching that book, I met a guy named Jim Walzell, who is a pipeline guy. And he, and he said back then, you know, this deregulation of the electricity markets is not going to be good for consumers. And I kind of discounted it. And, and I talked to him the other day and he said, you have to pay for energy and capacity. And if you think about it, okay, well, say you have a, a gas station, this isn't a perfect analogy, but if you have a, a service station on Memorial Day, on Memorial Day weekend, you're going to have a lot more demand for gasoline on that mm -hmm. weekend than you will on, you know, Christmas day. 
or, you know, people drive more on Memorial Day than they do in the wintertime. Well, so your energy different, your, your, the amount of energy you're going to have to deliver, the number of gallons of gasoline you're going to deliver on Memorial Day is far greater than it would be on those other days. So you have to be prepared. You have to have the capacity to deliver that many gallons of gasoline during peak demand periods. And if you don't have it, you're not serving your customers well. And, but gasoline ain't electricity and, and electricity is the key. This is the basis of modern society. It is the fundamental driver of modernity. And without that, we are really, um, this is a technical term, we're screwed. What should Texas have done um, that would have avoided this disaster? What could they and should they have done? Well, there should have been some accommodation for capacity markets and capacity <clears throat> markets aren't a perfect way to govern electricity, uh, electricity markets either. There's no perfect solution here. But the reality is that the, the market has treated electricity solely as a commodity and less as a service. And it has aspects of both, right? We get, but we get billed for watt hours. We get billed for the energy we consume. Well, in reality, the big costs in providing a service on a grid are for the service as a whole. So there has to be a rebalancing of this idea, but it, it fundamentally, and it, the focus has to be shifted away solely from decarbonization, which has been almost the entire focus and more on reliability and resilience and at, for both winter peaks and summer peaks. And to add just one quick point, we have to understand for the, the issues that I've been talking about for more than a decade, the value of the importance of natural gas and nuclear. These are low carbon, relatively low cost, can provide baseload power, and yet they've been pushed to the margins. Natural gas now in the United States, I believe, is a critical infrastructure uh, fuel, and we abandon the natural gas grid at our peril. And yet that is the push being made by climate activists all across the country. Are you saying that the state of Texas was pushing a decarbonization agenda and, and that was behind the growth of the wind power and the solar power. That was not the stated purpose, Phelan, I'll be clear. That was not the stated purpose. By setting up an energy-only market, that was, the, that was in fact, the, 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 the policy result, was that a push for more decarbonization, retirement of coal-fired power plants, um, and not building enough new gas-fired power plants because they couldn't be financed. Um, and so the only thing that can be built and financed in the state now are wind and solar. Because again, it goes back to the energy only market that you have a system that only rewards gas generators based on the amount of time that they operate, their capacity factors. But there's no way to, for uh, 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 this is one of the problems, they don't know, they don't get a capacity payment. They don't get an, uh, any kind of money for just being ready, right? They only can be paid for the amount of energy that they deliver. So they're, they are disadvantaged in the whole marketplace. And if they're disadvantaged in the marketplace, is wind priority? Does does wind get extra points? Is is wind put ahead of all the other forms of energy in Texas? Well, yes, because they're getting such a significant federal tax incentive. The production tax credit allows in some in, in, in some times of the day for wind energy to be fed into the grid at negative prices. I mean, who, who else can stay in business by, by saying, oh, we'll take a negative number, but they'll take a negative number into the wholesale market because they're still getting the production tax credit, which can be $20, $23 per megawatt hour. That's a lot of money when you consider that the wholesale price, I don't know what the latest one numbers are, the wholesale price of electricity in Texas is in the $20 to $30 range. 
So this this skewing this 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 um, distortion in the marketplace has had real ramifications. And and I think that one of the things that's in, I'm trying to work my th- way through it. I'm working on another piece for Forbes about you know what are the top ten takeaways. This idea, oh, wind and solar are cheaper. Well, yeah, they're cheaper until they aren't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've seen some of that news of people getting um, uh, electricity bills, just astronomical electricity bills in Texas. What What's the situation today? Um, you've got the lights on, obviously, there. Um, how many people are still in, a, in, in having problems in Texas? The latest I've seen is that the situation is coming closer back to normal. Um, we fared pretty well, honestly, and I, you know, I count my lucky stars. We had a natural gas connection, right? And this is to go back to this electrify everything push. Had that, had we been subject to that, we probably would have had to leave our home because we wouldn't have been able to cook. We wouldn't have had hot water, wouldn't have hot coffee. Now, be clear, we stocked in a lot of tequila and we had firewood, and, but we could cook. So we had hot food. And, you know, what a, what a pleasure that is when you're in a room that's 40 degrees. So we were sitting by the fireplace and, you know, staying warm, moved our bed into the living room. So we're near the, the only source of heat in the room. But a lot of people in Austin had it far worse. Um, my colleague Tyson Culver, who directed Juice, he, he was without uh, power for a short time and then he lost water. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine today that had has, has been without water for four days um, in, in his home and had power intermittently. So the state is slowly returning to normal, but the uh, yeah. economic uh, losses are going to be in the tens of billions of dollars. Do you think something is going to change in Texas? Do you think this this event has educated people in Texas that something needs to change that are they getting educated? Will they get educated? Will they change how they uh, how they get electricity? How they um, deal with capacity? Are they, is that going to happen? The way I put it in is that the autopsy on this is going to be gruesome. That there are going to be some facts coming out that are going to not be flattering to a lot of different sectors, um, including probably the natural gas sector in some ways because they couldn't deliver. Um, but I think this, I you know, uh, some of the cost numbers and also the death toll. Uh, there's was already been a couple of deaths attributed. One was, I think, an 11 year old boy who was living in a trailer in Houston who froze to death. And it made me think about this. You know, energy poverty isn't just a problem. It was one of the thing, things, themes in juice. We went all over the world, India, Iceland, Lebanon, Puerto Rico. We saw real energy poverty. But people in America in the last few days have died because of energy poverty. We were lucky in that we could we had the ability to have natural gas. We had firewood. We could stay warm. I think that if the death toll is high enough and if there the repercussions here, we'll see some significant change. But are you scared that they might learn the wrong lessons from this? And, you know, this this needs we need more renewables, uh, more wind power, more solar panels. That's been some of the chorus that you've seen in some of the national media. I mean, Naomi Klein had a piece in the Washington, in the New York Times. I think it was just yesterday in which actually she misquoted Rick Perry and used the line that was my lead in my piece in Forbes. And I just said, I'm asking them to correct it. I put a, sent him a letter to the editor saying, well, energy security means natural gas now. I mean, this is one of the realities. And these people that are pushing a Green New Deal and say, if only we had more renewables, I think if we'd had 100% renewables, we would have had 100% blackouts. I mean, there just aren't any batteries that can last for six days. I'm sorry. It's just, you know, not going to, and batteries hate the cold. So this idea that we can just do it with renewables, and it's not only dangerous, it's wrongheaded. I mean, it's not only wrongheaded, it's dangerous. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I'm, I don't have a dog in this fight, but after watching this and writing about the energy business in Texas for now 30 years, I, 
we've taken the resilience and the reliability of the electric grid for granted, and we do so at our peril. But how did how did Texas end up with twenty two percent of its energy being provided by windmills and wind turbines and solar? And why did no one notice? Well, you know, the funny thing is that a lot of this press and Paul Krugman had a piece in the New York Times and then Naomi Klein in the New York Times. Oh, those Texas Republicans, they're just so dumb. You know, if they were any dumber, we'd have to, you know, you know, they're dumber than a box of rocks, a barrel of hair, a box of hammers. You know, they just don't get it. Well, it was the Republicans in Texas that allowed this, that, that created this whole system. <laughs> Their memories are pretty short. Why did it happen? It's because I think fundamentally our policymakers aren't engineers, they're lawyers. They don't understand how the system works. And so they don't think ahead about, well, what could go wrong? And so we, and, and, and you add in the profit factor by a lot of people who, including Enron, argued for a deregulated market and opening the market. Well, deregulation may have not been the right move because there, there, when the incentives under a deregulated market were to cut corners and not to assure reliability. And, and that's one of the key things here that, you know, is a takeaway, I think, Phelan and Ann, is that the, with this deregulated market, the buck doesn't stop anywhere. Oh, it's just the system. Well, if it was a regulated market, there'd be one utility executive that said, well, why did your utility fail? And instead, it's just like, oh, well, it's the head of ERCOT. Well, he's not the manager. I mean, he oversees the marketplace, but he's not the one that, that caused all this. So this is, there's, as I said, this, the reckoning on this is going to take a, a years, and there's going to be a ton written about it, and a lot of finger pointing and a lot of litigation. Um, I hope Texas learns. I really do, because I don't want to be blacked out. I hope the whole world learns. I mean, funny, one of the things that, that struck me when this happened um, was in Ireland, I don't know if you know, they, they have now um, outlawed, if you're building a home in Ireland, they won't allow you to have an open fireplace. They've done away with them. And they're actually doing away with solid fuel, you know, the kind of solid fuel you put into like a fireplace. Like peat and now coal. So I was thinking, like, we have a home in Ireland, and I was thinking, you know, if this thing happened, if we were out of electricity in, in that home, the only thing we'd have would be the open fire. And what they're going to do, what they're planning to do in Ireland, is make sure you've got nothing to put in there, that you have nothing to put into that open fire. And I'm thinking, you know, that was what saved you, right? You had some nice wood, and you had the open fire, and you were able to sleep inside in that room. Well, you also had gas. They're now, well, just, they also had I, gas. I saw yeah. there's a regulation now. They're trying to bring in a law. That it's make it illegal to build liquefied natural gas terminals in the Republic of Ireland because they don't want to import uh, fossil fuels. But, so I think that the message. But you, but you add those together, and you have all these communities in California now. Forty communities in California banning natural gas. Uh, you the city of Seattle banning the future use of natural gas. Yeah. The cities of Oakland. You're in California. The cities of Oakland and Ho San Jose. They imposed bans on natural gas, and then two or three days later, Pacific Gas and Electric announced an 8% electricity rate hike. I mean, so it's bad for energy security. It's, it's a regressive tax on the poor and the middle class. Why? Because electricity costs four times as much as, as, uh, uh, as natural gas on an energy equivalent basis. So we're not only we're going to reduce the energy security for average Americans, we're going to make the energy they consume more uh, uh, less less secure and more expensive. I mean, it just the 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 impacts of this. I I got to tell you, it's uh, it fairly radicalized me. You know, I've, I've I've tried to be a little circumspect in how I talk about these issues and try and be you know a, not push too hard, but this experience has changed me and it's made me realize, no, 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 no. There's, 
being nice on some of these issues, it's just not the right path. And you have to say it exactly the way it is. And I think that it's just that these natural gas bans are just not a bad idea. They're dangerous and, 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 and could end up with a lot of people dying because of it. I can, I can really imagine how this has radicalized you because you've written about this and you've thought about this for decades. Um, and then there you are right in the center of this, you know, worldwide event that's been reported about all over the world. And I think you're really right about um, the PR machine behind renewables really um, ramped up during this period because everywhere I was reading and people were sending me stuff, you know, the, 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 the wind uh, people were um, defending themselves or, or saying it's nothing to do with me, nothing to do with nothing to see here. You know, they were really anxious to get that story out. How can, how can, how can a, an industry that provides 22% of, of a state's electricity not be responsible when blackouts happen. So they want all the credit for, oh, we've got 22% of the electricity. But when, when there's blackouts, it's got nothing to do with us. We, we, it's, it's like, well. And I might, can I just, just add another thing here? I, I think we put up a chart the last time we were talking about this, where because of what happened with wind, where wind completely shut down, natural gas did um, ramp up its its um its output dramatically ramped up its output. Obviously, the total capacity was not enough to meet the needs of the people, but it did ramp. It did take over. Basically, natural gas filled the gap that had been uh, absented by the frozen absolutely, wind turbines. Absolutely. So that the wind energy business has been able, and the solar business, were able to come into the Texas grid and free ride on the on the reliable generation provided by gas and coal. They didn't provide capacity. They didn't provide power when power was needed. They provided energy when energy was was not Easy. necessarily needed. Their peaks yeah. are coming at times when the there's not a lot of energy demand. But I think I think that the you know the this big picture of of the of these natural gas bans and the efforts to demonize the gas grid in America. Well, okay, wait a minute. It's low carbon. It's not just abundant. It's super abundant. It's domestic and it's low cost. Mm-hmm. And yet the, there is a concerted effort and there are tens of millions of dollars behind these environmental groups that are pushing this agenda. Yeah. That's the reality. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it, it, you know, for years it's been, Oh, big oil, you know, and those, Oh, and then they'd come after me. Oh, big oil. You know, and it was all a, a bunch of character assassination with no understanding of what the facts were or what the scale of the energy consumption is. And that's the key for the gas grid is that it can deliver far more energy during the winter than the electric grid can. Mm-hmm. To give yeah. you a quick point, during the coldest days of winter, the, the gas grid delivers three times as much energy on a total energy basis than the, than the electric grid de- does during the hottest days of summer. So, well, you think about that and you think, oh, well, why is that? Well, I didn't, well, if it's 10 degrees or, or let's call it zero and, per, and what you want is 70 degrees. Well, that's a spread of 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm. Well, that's a big difference from when it was 110 and you want it to be 70. Well, that's only 40 degrees. Yeah. Well, so the, the, the spread is larger, but the more people die of cold than they do of heat. Yeah. So this is about national security and it's about personal security. And the last point there is the funda- most fundamental meaning of energy security is that we don't all freeze to death in the winter. Yeah. yeah, and we can't all go to Cancun, I suppose. <laughs> oh, cruise, the cruise, cruise of Cancun. I mean, <laughs> come on, man. You know, do you, come on, do man. Do not think anybody at the airport maybe has a cell phone that has a camera on it that yeah. might. I think he he summed it up best himself, by the way, when he his initial when he made the statement where he the, the first line of his statement was, "It was a bit tone deaf." I was thinking tone deaf, Ted. Yeah. 
God bless us. I mean, know? it's um, <laughs> it's. It, I mean, we know Ted quite very well. Anne knows him very well, and, and I spent many times with him. One thing I would say about Ted, and I've had personal experience of this, is Ted's not really the senator for Texas. Ted's like the senator for conservative America and, um, you know, and half and half of America and all this. And he goes on Fox News on a granular level in Texas. I'm not sure he's a, we call it a good constituency MP. That's what they call it in Britain. You know, he's not good at getting you your dole check or getting your, you know, if, you know, if you're a victim of bureaucracy. I, and I know that from from personal experience. I know it from other people who've asked him to do things that senators should do to help their constituents, and he's not good at it. So it's um, he well, he, he forgot he was a senator for Texas. I think so. he's now remembered that he's a senator from Texas, and I think people yes. are going to be remembering that to him yes. forever. Yes. Um, but yeah, that was kind of an extraordinary an extraordinary thing. Well, anyway, we're really glad you're safe and well and warm, and that the electricity is on. But I do think I think your point is very well made. Um, you know, hopefully people will have been educated a little bit. I mean, it's one of the points that we made many times when we did Frack Nation and started understanding the energy situation was most people take, and you and I, we've had this conversation, you and I have had this conversation loads of times. People take energy for granted. They take electricity for granted. You plug things in, you know. You know, I, I remember at the beginning of the pandem pandemic, I remember even saying to Phelan, well, at least we've got electricity, you know, because that's yeah. the whole thing. Then, then you have everything. Then it's all the warmth and the cool and the cooking and all kinds of stuff and the television, and the entertainment and the cell phone and, the and all these things. Um, but one of the, but I, I've always felt this when I've talked in colleges as well across the country is people don't know where the electricity comes from. They don't. And if it, it should be a thing where when you press the switch, you know what I mean? There nearly should be an information thing that comes up and says the percentages of where this is coming from. People need that education. You know, we laugh at the people here in California who have the electric cars, you know, the electric cars that are powered by coal and they don't know it, but they feel so smug. And of course, we heard, what was the story, Phelan? Was it $900 to charge your car? In, or uh, 9000 was it? You basically couldn't charge your car um, in, in Texas. We've just got to sign up saying our inter internet connection is unstable. Yes. This this push for decarbonization, I understand it. I understand the the, uh, the desire to address climate change. Climate change is a concern, but it's not the only concern. And what I think is clear in the wake of this blackout is that we need a more human agenda. We need a more pro-human, pro-energy agenda. And it's one that recognizes the importance and the resilience of the electricity grid. This is the most important grid. It's the most important network that we have. And we and, and, and electricity is the form of energy we crave over every other. So yeah. this is, this debate is going to keep going. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not happy about the blackout I'm not at all, but I am happy that the issue of electricity is finally getting the kind of attention that it deserves because yeah. this is the fundamental driver of modernity. But we have the most regulated electricity system on the planet here in California. We've had, you know, we, we could, we could tell you a thing or two, you Texans, we could tell you a thing or two, but blackouts, you big girls over there, you well, know. I mean, don't have the cold, you see, fellas. <laughs> I, I, I but, prefer sissy boy. Yeah, but if girls, <laughs> it's, it's okay, yeah. you know. It's right. Yeah, but and you know what I mean. Like, so I mean, I'm not sure the Uber <laughs> regulation is the issue uh, to to solve blackout issues. Well, okay, that's a fair point. I'll answer it this way. I mentioned Meredith Angwin, who I'm quite a fan of, and I've had her on my podcast now twice, including yesterday, and it was the, it's been the most popular podcast I've, I've done. Mm -hmm. uh, we released it last Wednesday, but she she calls it the fatal trifecta, and here's the 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 the, the similarities between California and Texas. 
the fatal trifecta, too much reliance on renewables, too much reliance on just-in-time delivery of natural gas, and too much reliance on imports. So California had all of those three. During the blackouts, Texas had two of the three. So it, it, I think the, the, my response to you is, California is about to close your, your last nuclear plant, the Diablo Canyon plant. Yes, well, you're going to make your grid yet more unstable by closing that plant. And so, yes, there are similarities between California and Texas, um, and there are a lot of differences. But I think what we see, what we clearly saw in the blackouts is the value of nuclear in Texas. The generation from the nuclear plants performed better than any other form of generation. And without that, um, Oh, 4,000 some odd megawatts, Texas would have been in an even deeper hole. And, and the, 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 the reality was that Texas came so close to a complete grid shutdown that would have been catastrophic. I mean, and that is truly scary. Oh my God. Well, can you just remind us again of, and I'm, apologies, I didn't mention that at the beginning, um, your most recent book, which we did talk about the last time you were on the show. Let's uh, give us the name of that again, because it's really brilliant and incredibly timely. Thank you. Yes, it's a question of power, electricity and the wealth of nations. <laughs> Our film, uh, Juice, How Electricity Explains the World, is now on Amazon Prime. It's also on the Roku channel for free. Oh, good. Uh, so there's no excuse for people not to watch it anymore. Yeah. Okay. Um, and also my podcast. It's called The Power Hungry Podcast. We will put up the links to everything, Robert. We're very grateful for your time today. And again, thank God that you're well and that you were safe. But um, we are very sorry to hear of the loss of life that has happened in Texas. That's an awful story that you shared with us. Um, so people need to get educated. Yeah, I mean, you talked about you talked about you talked about the environment, about the anti, you know, the need to be more pro-human. I mean, at the core environmental ideology, there is a deep anti-human strain there that people don't realize. And I think we're seeing the results of that in Texas. Well, thanks you all. It's been a great thanks. pleasure. Glad, glad, uh, glad it's warm and sunny out there. And finally it's warm and sunny here. So yes. well, thanks. Thank thanks. God for that. Okay. All right, Robert, thanks a million. Well, that was great. Um, yes, Robert is, is, is the expert. He is the man. And, you know, hopefully, hopefully Texas will learn the right lessons. Well, uh, I'd like more people than just Texas to learn from this and realize, you know, how, how vulnerable we are yes. to, you know, in the, in the absence of electricity the and to these shocks to that electrical system and that the electrical system is, is vital. It's absolutely vital to keep us safe. Extraordinary. But we had our own story, actually, um, because I, I Well, actually, well, I mean, I, I want to say something first about... Uh, so the media is obviously struggling, right, to, to try and, you know, work out how, how to spin this. Uh, well, they've been trying to spin it. Like, I mean, the fact is 22% of Texas electricity came from renewables. They completely failed. I think about 97% of it failed. You know, that is a big loss to any network and they're struggling. But then the other struggle they have is how do you uh, explain that Texas, the hottest state, I think it's called, uh, is freezing, but yet we still have global warming. So I have... Uh, you can rely on the New York Times to, yes. have, the, to have an answer so for that. So I am on many New York Times newsletters that, that I get in the morning. And uh, good morning. Uh, said this David Lenhart, he, this is his newsletter. I don't know what even what you use now. This is just one of them. A Times reporter explains the connection between frigid weather and global warming. I was, when I saw that, I was thinking, oh, I gotta see this. You know, because the New York Times is very good sometimes at explaining things. But how do you explain something that's just nonsensical and not true? That's right, that doesn't make any sense. So yeah. much of the Pacific Northwest, Texas, is cold, everywhere's cold. Uh, to make sense of the week's cold spells, I spoke with John Swartz, a time reporter who focuses on the climate. 
you know and so he starts off simple question how do you think about record low temperatures hammering parts of the u.s at the same time we're experiencing global warming and swartz says well it does sound counterintuitive you betcha. There might be a reason for that, John. Yeah. <laughs> See, I mean, this is... This is and I who think is Mr. Schwartz now? He's, he's the top climate reporter for the New York Times. Fabulous. I mean, I think as a journalist, right, um, you know, you, why, why do they start with something that's counterintuitive? Like, wh why don't they start with something that's actually intuitive, right? You know, so anyway, he says, those who deny climate science love to declare that there's no such thing as climate change whenever the weather turns cold. You know, Possibly, it's possibly because it's quite a good argument, right? But anyway, he then says, but whether, this is his explanation, this is his repost to people who say that. But weather remains variable and cold weather in winter still happens, even if the overall warming trend means that winters are getting milder. Okay, that makes no sense at all. It makes no sense at all. But weather remains variable. Thank you for that. Finally, we've got an admission that weather is variable. How variable is it, John Swartz, climate reporter, climate expert at the New York Times? Maybe it's so variable that climate change doesn't matter. That, but, but weather remains variable and cold weather in winter still happens, even if the overall warming trend means that winters are getting milder. But John Swartz, tell me, does cold kill people or heat kill people? The answer, John, is cold kills people. So surely winter is getting milder. It's, it's a, a good, good thing. thing. Yes. But we don't go into that. So then no. we move Moving on. Moving right along. So the next question that, uh, what's this guy's name? <laughs> this is the, the news, David Leonard, uh, who, who's the newsletter guy, is asking Mr. Schwartz, the reporter. And is there any relationship between the, this week's storm and climate change? I noticed that climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe uses the phrase, Global weirding. Isn't that a really scientific term, man? Global weirding. It's just Have they moved on then from global warming to climate change to global weirding? Yeah, because not, nothing was... Because nothing, nothing makes sense. Yes. From the, the way they've been explaining it, nothing makes sense. So now they're going to just segue into calling it global weirding. So John then says, his answer is, there's interesting science that suggests the effects of a warming world have something to do with these sudden bursts of Arctic cold as well. Something to do with it. But yeah, the, but cold, who knows? the cold air at the top of the world, the polar vortex, is usually held in place by a circulating jet stream. The northern hemisphere's warming appears to be weakening the jet stream, and when sudden blasts of heat in the stratosphere punch into the vortex, that Arctic air can spill down into the middle latitudes. So, does that mean then that the winters are getting colder, not milder? John Swartz. In direct contradiction with what you said a few lines earlier. I mean, it goes on and on. And honestly, I was reading it trying to, trying to see what they were saying. I'm interested in that. And, and of course, great journalists make complicated things simple so that ordinary people can read. And you're, you would be, I would say now, Phil, above average intelligence or even just average intelligence. Yes. One of them. Well, and yeah. were you having a difficulty trying having, to understand and this, then, then the next question is, are there any other patterns of winter weather that might be connected to climate change? A warming atmosphere can hold more moisture, so when you get storms, you do, can't expect to see heavier rain and snow. There's also fascinating research that links a warming Arctic to in, increased frequency of the broad range of extreme winter weather in parts of the United States. It's part of the, it's known as the, and this is a scientific term, warm Arctic slash cold continents pattern, a form, phenomenon that's still being studied. But didn't you say like, a minute ago. Ten minutes ago, ten sentences ago, 
that milder the, winters. Even if the overall warming trend means that w winters are getting milder. Now you're telling us we can expect heavier rain and snow in the winter and that there's this phenomenon of broad extreme winter weather in parts of the United States known as warm Arctic and cold continents pattern. It just because it's quite short but it goes on like that and it is complete nonsense it, on stilts. It doesn't make any sense and the reason it doesn't make any sense is because it's nonsensical and because someone is trying to lie basically in that New York Times way. And contort themselves and contort into, them. in, into making everything be global warming, I mean, climate change. It would be much easier to say and much more truthful to say. Who knows? Who knows actually. And you know what? We've always had extreme weather and this weather in Texas isn't that unprecedented. Now I would argue it's unprecedented enough that you shouldn't probably overreact. You know, if it's once every 50 years that this weather pattern happens, should you buy snow plows? You know, should you spend a lot of money for a, a once in a 30 year phenomenon or should you just? Well, I think one thing that we, I think that we definitely got from the interview with, with Robert was that the, the grid needs to have a, yes. have a greater capacity for things that happen because you know what? Things happen. I, I'm talking about things like though, you know, could be like snow plows. Uh, you know, do you, do you buy snow plows to sit in a shed for 30 years and then they're no use? So, um, look, there's a lot of uh, you know, you can. There's a lot of dishonesty, and people are trying to push lines. Uh, and when you see people trying to contort themselves, you know that these are not honest players in this argument in this debate, and shouldn't be listened to. So we have a story from t uh, Austin, Texas ourselves. So Magda went to Austin, Texas with her friends. Her friends are thinking of moving there and they were looking at property. And they, Magda got out on a flight on Sunday. It was like the flight out of um, and last, basically when last she went, helicopter off the embassy when, roof. When she, went, when she went to the airport, like everyone was leaving the airport, but Spirit Airlines were still flying. No, 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 everyone, no, when you say everyone, she was walking in and everyone was walking out. That's right. Not everyone, everyone was leaving the airport as in flying away. Everyone oh, was no, walking, leaving the air, walking out of the saying, airport. Don't saying, go in there, it's, don't go in, it's hell in there. But no, Magda, no flights. So Magda anyway did get away on the last flight on Sunday and it was all very touch and go and they were on the runway for 40 minutes and there was ice on the wings and they were kind of scared, but they got home safe and sound. Their friends who had a flight on Monday, the flight was cancelled on Monday. Then it was uh, pushed forward to Thursday. Yes. Um, long story short, they're in a hotel. They're stuck in Austin. They're in a hotel. There is no electricity, no running water. They have a three-year-old. They're in a hotel room, like under the duvet, basically, the three of them. Do you know what they're eating? Potato crisps. No food. There's no food. Potato chips. And the child is wearing three coats. And the, the child is wearing three coats. Very frightening. I have a very dear friend who lives outside Austin who said, I'll help them out if they can get out to me. I can't drive because, of course, the roads were impassable. They had the same problem. They had a car, a rental car, but they couldn't drive to my friend because of the roads being impassable. Long story short, and I'm kind of making this a short, I'm trying to shorten this a little bit. At a, they, you know, they struggled through and they struggled through and then... They went to the airport they, to get their flight. They went to the airport um, to get their flight and they missed their flight because of the roads being so bad. Flash forward then, they go back. The, there is no room in the hotel anymore. The hotel has actually been declared a disaster zone because the pipes have burst. Yeah. And then they think, the husband says to himself, do you know what, we're just going to have to drive west. I want to get a car and just drive west. So they go to a car rental company and they're lined up and the next thing as they're in the line and the big big line of people the man in charge of the rental car company comes outside and shouts 
No cars. No everyone. There's no more cars. No more cars. But in the line, just ahead of them, there's a lady. I just love this story. Brought tears to Magda's eyes, brings tears to my eyes, and we're going to bring tears to your eyes. So woman in the line ahead of them, she could hear that this couple talking and talking about their little girl and all that sort of stuff, right? And so she said a prayer and she said, God, if you get me a car, I am going to take that crowd, that couple with their little baby, their little three-year-old, I'm going to take them wherever they want to go. Guess what? <laughs> so she gets a car. She got the last car. She got the last car and she says to the husband, look, I made a deal with God and I've got, we've got to pick these people up, you know? So... They pick the people up and they say, where are you going? And it turned out, like, so that, that couple, so th- at this point, our friends wanted to go to my friend's house. And my friend's house is like an hour north. north, north of where they were with the car rental. The couple who decided to help them out because they made the deal with God were going south, two hours going yes. south. So, so completely out of their way. Completely out of the way. But guess what? They, take the, the, they all trundle into the car and take off. And this is like nighttime in the dark, by the way, to drive to my friend's house. Um, which I just love. By the way, we love the, there's another little lovely piece of this story. They're in the car and you know the way you'd be in the car with somebody like a complete stranger and you're thinking, now obviously these are Christian people obviously and great people, but you wouldn't, you know, you don't know who they support or what kind of politics they have. So they're kind of going gentle, gentle. And then they just eventually, our friends, the couple, they sort of mentioned the orange man and then the other people like, oh, we love the orange man. Oh, we love the orange man. So then of course everyone's all bonding, huge amount of bonding. And then they were sort of explaining how they knew the, the, how this friend of mine who lives outside, how did I know her, whatever. Then they had to explain, oh, well, our friends made a documentary called Frack Nation. Oh, well, listen, the car took off then. They're Wait. all in the car saying, oh, we love Frack Nation. So we the couple it. knows Frack Nation, have seen Frack Nation, knows us, even knows Magda, they're, they're, they're these people's friends. So uh, it was quite a coincidence. So it was a really happy story. So really if, I don't know if they listen to the podcast. If you do, thank you so much for looking after our friends and their, and their little baby. Yes. Um, we, we cannot thank you enough and it's a wonderful thing and it's a great example uh, for everyone out there to try and help. Do you hear that, uh, Ted Cruz? <coughs> show a little kindness. Uh, show a little kindness. Yes. And by the way, that, that's exa- sort of for me, that was the thing with Ted Cruz. That's my point. That's the type of thing he could have done. He could have driven somebody somewhere. He could have just done something for some po- person rather than go off and, you know, anyway. And his wife, I think his wife and the children are a very good idea to, for them to go off. Good for them. Off you go. But I think he should have stayed. And, um, and helped out because he is actually the senator from Texas, representing people from Texas and caring about people from Texas. Moving on from that film, what's your, what, you wanted to tell us something about yes, well, the, the most offensive most show offensive on show television. On I mean, this is out of the New York Post, but I see it's everywhere now. Um, <laughs> so anyone who streams The Muppet Show on the Disney Plus channel will see a disclaimer first, warning of offensive content. Offensive content. Yeah, so they released the, f- the first five seasons of The Muppets on f- last fr- uh, Friday, was it? Yeah, and, uh, Can I just immediately intervene here and say to Magda, you know what, that's like an advertisement. I think now Eric should be watching The Muppets now, you know. It almost makes me think it must be very good if it's that yeah. offensive. I, mean, I, you know? I wasn't that much into The Muppets, right? I think they're quite nice, you know. I think we were the wrong age. Maybe, but I didn't get into them. And uh, I remember my cousin. Well, you were probably right 20, to... Phil, you think that no, might no, be the I'm reason. Younger, no, But you're, what year were The Muppets then, do you think? You may have been 20, yeah. <gasps> oh, well, look at me getting a toy boy to marry me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, boy child. Okay. Go ahead um, there. So apparently the disclaimer uh, prior to each episode, and I'm reading this, says the show features stereotypes 
and the mistreatment of people or cultures. Sounds good, I'd almost like it for that. <laughs> this programme includes negative depictions and our mistreatment of peoples or cultures. These stereotypes were wrong then and are wrong now, the disclaimer states. But we're going to still make money out of them. But by the way, all I remember from the Muppets was the Swedish chef. Right, there's a frog. But there's a Swedish chef. Oh yeah, that was very good. Yeah, but he's a Swedish you think, chef. Oh, you think the Swedes are up I once worked in a place where there was a Swedish chef. And did everyone go, hoody, gurdy, 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 gurdy? Yeah, it was in Germany and nobody, I don't think the Muppets were particularly big there. And maybe maybe the Swedish chef wasn't Swedish there, maybe he was an Albanian chef or whatever. But anyway, they couldn't understand why all the Irish people, the British people have, were laughing their asses off. Because... You know, there's a chef, he's from Sweden, and everyone goes, ah! Hoodle, hoodle, <laughs> Yes. Okay. So the negative depictions, so, Phelan, of the, people yes. and cultures. Uh, these stereotypes are wrong then and are wrong now. But we're still going to make money out of yeah, it. Rather than remove this content, we want to acknowledge its harmful impact, learn from it, and spark conversation to create a more inclusive future together. Well, why not you remove the content? Yeah, you can remove it. Remove the whole episode. Actually, everything's tainted. By the way, burn the whole thing. By, if Roseanne can be all her back, all her back episodes of Roseanne were removed because she sent one tweet, tweet 30 years later. Everything's been removed. You can't see the early episodes of Roseanne now. Surely makes me realise or makes me think that the Muppets are incredibly popular on the Disney Plus channel and that loads of people are watching them and they don't want to anger people who have signed up for this expensive subscription and they want, they want to grow that audience yeah. so they don't want to throw stuff out. Yeah. Unbelievable. Um, we have another story. A shaggy dog story. This is an incredible story. This is a COVID story. And you, won't, you, you just won't believe this. So here's the, here's the story. I'm going to read this as it came out of the, uh, the start of this story, how it happened in the Irish Times. So the, the headline was, Dog lost for two weeks found in the Wicklow Mountains. So basically, on January the 23rd, while out walking on Lucknaquilla Mountain in County Wicklow, eight-year-old golden retriever, Nisha, and three-year-old German shepherd, Harley, both, the both of them bolted after a deer, right? But Nisha didn't come back. So basically, Harley came back, the German shepherd, but the other dog, gone, gone, gone. I just say that confirms my ethnic stereotypes about golden retrievers. <laughs> oh, what, that they're stupid? Oh, yeah. They're oh, lovely. They're any, lovely. Any dog that loyal is, is probably a bit dumb. Anyway, sorry. Right. Oh, so controversial. the family tried everything. They looked and looked and looked. The evening came. They couldn't find, so they had to go, and they went back the next day. They did all this kind of thing. They even used a drone. They even used a drone. And they left went, a bag of unwashed laundry on the trail. Yeah, they, we oh, went on oh. social media and posted it out. Then a week weekend later, we were still looking for her, and we were starting to give up hope, said so, Irina O'Shea. Gutlin, Guttilian. So we just call her Irina O'Shea because I can't, I can't pronounce the rest of her name. So Irina O'Shea said that, right? One of Nisha's owners. Another week went by and we just thought, she's eight years old. It's been two weeks. There's no way she could survive. So now they've decided the dog is dead. But don't despair, all our listeners. Wait to hear what happened next. However, on Saturday, this is two weeks later, Jean-Francois Bonnet. Oh, he's one of the Bonnets of Wicklow. Jean-Francois Jean -Francois Bonnet and oh, Kira Nolan, she she'd be Irish, yes. two doctors hiking on the mountains found a cold, weak dog who'd not barely walk mm. near the summit. Mm. The couple wrapped her in spare clothes and tried to carry her down the mountain, but the terrain was icy and they fell a few times. Can Miss I just add that the dog had lost a third of its body weight at this I was going to get to that right, bit. Okay. Miss Nolan used her scarf to attach Nisa to Mr. Bonnet's backpack. They continued their descent, a journey of about 10 kilometres, which took four or five hours. They brought the dog to their house, they fed her, they warmed her up and contacted the local animal rescue group, which tracked down her owners. 
Mrs. O'Shea Gertlin, that's Rena Gertlin, said, on Saturday I had a voicemail from the girl called Kira Nolan. When she said she had our dog, we were like, what? You couldn't, she's dead. So we contacted her and picked her up from them. Now, the dog is home, how fabulous is that? So, so far, so fabulous. This is a story, so far, so fabulous. Now here's an interesting aspect of the story. The two doctors who found the dog, Nisha, in the mountains were staying at a hotel in Wicklow, a hotel that had opened, you know, the, all the hotels in Ireland are closed, hospitality completely closed. But a hotel opened and said, look, nurses and doctors who think that they're basically at the end of the rope, who might be suffering from mental health issues and are worried about their mental health, come and stay in our hotel. And so these two doctors were staying in that hotel, right? So next thing is, I'm putting up a photograph here, by the way. I'm just putting up a photograph here of the lovely people who found the dog. Look at the two people who found the dog. There's well, the two no. doctors. Oh, that's that's the two doctors, right? And look at your one there. Isn't she lovely? There's the two doctors. Could they not be happier as not lovely? So guess what happened next? A concerned citizen in Ireland decided to phone the police to report on the two doctors who had been more than five kilometres from their house in contravention of the rules that they have in Ireland now. Yeah, you can't and be you can't be more than five kilometers. So the two doctors are being investigated, and add on more more grief upon grief. The hotel has had to close. That was offering a respite for doctors and nurses who are under strain in Ireland because of the COVID. Isn't that what kind? You know, here's the thing. <clears throat> what kind of a lunatic are you that you would phone the police? on these two, look at the photograph of them again, these two lovely people who struggled down a mountain in bad weather to save a dog. They risked their and own by health the way, by and slipping wee, on ice. And by the way, and that wee dog, by that's the way. That's not a wee dog. That lovely dog, I should say. That's, okay. a, that's a big dog. Well, I mean, that lovely dog, by the way. But, has, but if it was a, a wee dog, it would be better. And, and by the way, the, the family who lost the dog, they have children. And the wee dog, I'm reading about the dog, he's like, he's sleeping in the same room where the wee boy sleeps and everything. Like, honestly, are you a complete lunatic? So this oh, yeah, is the yeah. kind of lunacy that's going on. Yeah. Well, I remember a time when informing on people was frowned upon in Ireland. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to bring up Nazis, but I mean, like, honestly, you're the kind of person who would inform on those people. Like, I, I mean, I just can't. I don't even get it. I, I don't get it on any level at all. It's like, what is wrong with you? Like, what is wrong with you? Let's talk about something nice now, because I can't deal with that. We should have finished with a nice... Well, actually, you know what? We're going to finish with a nice thing. Here we are out on the patio. We're going to do our recipe of the week, and it's the recipe of chicken with 40 cloves. 40 shades of green. So this is a traditional French recipe, French peasant recipe, and it is just amazing. I read the recipe. It's one of those ones where I read loads and loads of versions of it online, but everywhere I read it, people said... It's magnificent mm -hmm. and the reviews were very, very good. So here's what you need. In my case, I always make a load of, I, I think when I'm making something like this, I, want, I, I think of myself as having six children. I don't have six children, but we have a fair few people come around to eat here. Mm. So I did six eggs, Some six of them chicken on time legs. too. Oh, oh, boom, boom. Chicken, I did six chicken legs. Some of them six, on time. Six skin and bone in ties. So basically, but it's any bits of chicken that you like, bits of chicken, but bone in. Do not use chicken breasts because they're going to dry out. A half a cup of vermouth. This is a trick now. A half a cup of vermouth. And guess what? I discovered I had a bottle of vermouth, which I've never used for anything else, but I think I inherited it from a friend who was leaving LA. I used uh, eight sprigs of parsley and eight sprigs of thyme, four celery stalks, 
two onions roughly chopped, 40 cloves of garlic, three tablespoons of virgin oil, and two tablespoons of butter. So the very first this thing- This recipe is going to be put up <coughs> on the website, on reporterstorysociety.com. On reporterstorysociety.com, and you can leave a, a donation while you're there. Start, if you can, and if you've time, and it's really worth it, by the way, by brining the chicken overnight, if you can. And What's brining me? And if you can't brine it overnight- What does brining I'm mean? just going to explain that now. If you can't brine it overnight, you can even do it that day, two or three hours. And so that basically means putting your chicken into a really large bowl, covering that bowl with water, about a half a cup of salt, maybe a quarter cup of sugar, two tablespoons of pepper, peppercorns, and I threw in a lemon. You throw in anything there that you think will be flavorful, and just leave it. In our case, we have a very cold room. I had it in a very cold room, or you, if you could fit the, the, the big container into a fridge, put it in the fridge, and just leave it there for a few hours, or as I said, overnight. In the morning, dry the chicken really, so really. So it doesn't become waterlogged? God, not at all. Dry the chicken really, really well in the morning. Dry it, dry it, dry it. Season it with pepper and salt. And then the first thing you want to do is heat oil and butter in a cast iron pan and sear that chicken. Get it nice and browned, super, super browned. Do it in batches. Don't overcrowd the pan. And then, um, you know, and it'll, you know three, or four, three or four minutes on each side will, not, will brown that up. And it's going to make a huge difference to the flavor. A lot of the recipes I saw didn't do that. And I don't understand why not. Remove the chicken when it's all browned and add the 40 cloves of garlic and the onion to the pan and cook until that begins to brown. Then you can add the vermouth and you can deglaze the pan with that. You could light that vermouth as well. We lit that vermouth. I don't think it shows up in the video there, but deglaze the pan. It, what's great about throwing the alcohol into the pan at that point is it'll totally clean your pan. It'll take all the little brown bits and all those little bits is what you really adore. Now get your Dutch oven out or your massive saucepan, but I think a Dutch oven is really worth the investment. You'll use it forever and you'll love it forever and it looks really good on the table. Add the chicken, the onions, the garlic, and scrape out all of the pan juices mm -hmm. into that pot, into that pot. I think it works. Throw okay. in the parsley. Throw in the thyme. Don't even bother. I wouldn't even bother trying to take the leaves off. Just throw the whole thing in. Throw in a couple of stalks of celery. You can see I did that. And mix it around so that all the goodies are all mixed in together. And then you want to cover the top of your uh, Dutch oven with tin foil, and then put the lid why, on. Why did we do that? To make it super super sealed. Why? Super super sealed. Just, just because you want because you want. You don't want to lose the. Um, oh, you don't want to lose. You don't want evaporation because you haven't got an awful lot of um, liquid in there, by yeah. the way. Uh -huh. And then put it in. A, I put it into a four hundred degree oven, and for ninety minutes, don't peek. Don't even bother. Do not look. Then take it out. Now, what you're meant to ideal, and it's, look at it, yummy, 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 when it comes out of the oven, absolutely fabulous. Now, Phelan and I are trying to give up carbs for Lent. Right. Trying. But so, what you really want to do, if you're not, if you haven't given up carbs for Lent, you want to get a French baguette and you want to eat this with the French baguette using the baguette to soak up all those lovely juices. I would put a piece of the chicken out on each plate and then put loads and loads of sauce on top of that and then use the baguette. We didn't do that because we're trying to be good. So we served it with a very, very nice salad. Can yeah, I just say a lovely. crunchy salad? And I did a couple of vegetables and it works really, really well for entertaining. Top tip if you're being entertained. At our house. At our house. Don't arrive 40 minutes late. If Don't. you do, if you do apologize profusely, um, yeah, yeah. Um, don't open the third bottle of wine yourself. Okay, <laughs> moving right along there. Oh, and if you're asked to bring blackberries and raspberries, bring blackberries and raspberries, not strawberries. No, bring blackberries. We really do like blackberries. They go really well with no, goat's cheese. Was, bring I know whatever, that's, bring whatever also, you're told to bring. <clears throat> we are going to sign off now. Um, we are... Very glad that you guys are here. Thank you for all the really nice comments. We got a lot of really, really nice comments last week and we love reading the comments. 
Um, take care wherever you are. It's a really, really mad world. We're very aware that we're not all in this together. We're here in the sunshine in California. We're able to sit outside and eat. And we had a lovely dinner on Friday night with a rabbi in, yeah. in Santa Monica. And with the Pragers were there. Just gorgeous. We're, we're having, a f everything's kind of, it's inconvenient. It's yeah. all this happening to us. The rest of the world, loads of places. Ireland and, the, Ireland and the UK is a nightmare. And people are living a nightmare existence. People should go to prison, by the way, for what they've done to people in Ireland and in yeah. the UK, uh, criminalizing healthy people, treating healthy people like criminals because they're trying to get outside and get a bit of air yeah. and get a bit of entertainment and not be alone. And people are not meant to be alone. We weren't designed like this. Anyway, I'm going to stop ranting. It is a tragedy what's going on out there. Yeah. It's a scandal. Yeah. Um, and it's awful. And we really are sorry for all our friends in the UK and Ireland who are having to be living these awful yeah. lives, dreadful lives. Hopefully it'll be over soon. Um, but anyway, that's us for this week. And do go ahead and make that um, chicken. It's really good. Hi, everyone. Cheer you up now. All the best. Bye. Bye. Bye.